0: and they bear great giants, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. Yikes! Welcome to another episode of God and the Paranormal, a podcast exploring the supernatural from a biblical worldview. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Suzanne, and I'm here with my co-host,
1: John. We've recently had the commemoration of the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers. What if you had two autobiographies written about 9-11? One was written by an eyewitness who wrote about the event the day after, and the other an eyewitness who wrote about it 20 years after the fact. Which would be more reliable, do you think?
0: Okay, so two accounts on the Twin Towers, one by an eyewitness who wrote about it, the event immediately, the other an eyewitness who wrote about it much later. Hmm. There's a lot of variables to consider, but I would assume it would be a memorable event for both. I might expect them both to have relatively accurate accounts. There might be individual differences, writing style differences, maybe Mm -hmm. the purpose for writing.
1: And somewhat different perspectives.
0: Oh, right. So accuracy might vary to some degree, but it's still the same story.
1: Yeah. Would the account written over 20 years ago after the fact be less accurate simply because time had passed, do you think?
0: Well, not necessarily. The later writer might just be more observant or more articulate or vice versa.
1: If there were obvious similarities between the two accounts, would you accuse the later writer of plagiarism?
0: No, not if both had witnessed the same event. I would expect there to be some similarities. Mm
1: -hmm. And this is exactly the principle that confuses so many people when you look at some of the Old Testament events. Mm. My, My very first day of college in a world civ class of all things, the first 10 minutes of class this professor just dropped a huge bomb on my 18 years of good, solid church training, godly parent advice, and everything.
0: Oh, wow. What what Civ topic would have affected you that much?
1: I, I don't even think it was a topic. It seemed like just a vendetta against Christians. For no apparent reason, the professor put up a slide comparing Genesis 1 with the Babylonian creation account, and then he showed the flood account from the Babylonian's perspective.
0: I know that there are similar accounts, but what was his point?
1: basically that since the babylonians wrote centuries before moses that moses must have borrowed from their mythology and sort of copied what they had already said
0: so he was saying moses plagiarized the babylonians
1: yeah and in my naive 18 year old brain he kind of made sense about it i had a good biblical worldview at least i thought i did i did tend to compartmentalize a lot at that time I had the Genesis account in one neat little package in my brain, and then another neat little package, I had this image of cavemen slowly developing mm. into civilized people.
0: Yeah, I think that's common for a lot of Christians. We have difficulty blending scriptural truth with some things that were taught by yep. schools and the media. But you do bring up a good point. Where do cavemen fit into human history?
1: Well, they don't fit into biblical human history, do they? And therein was my problem in Civ. Every media source you can think of has humans evolving slowly over millions of years. We would start as something like brutish ape-like beings. Mm. But if you accept the biblical narrative of Genesis 1, humans are already created civilized bearers of God's image, communicators with God from the very beginning. And according to Genesis 4... Adam and Eve's grandchildren had already mastered things like metallurgy and music, agriculture, construction of cities, Mm. and humans were really civilized from the beginning, not some half-animal Neanderthal or something.
0: Well, all of this is contrary to the whole secular anthropology of humans.
1: And that secular mindset implies that by the time written history developed, tribes of humans were probably already scattered all over the globe, and there was never a common central population of humans anywhere near the beginning of recorded history.
0: And it's that same story again, isn't it? The biblical timeline is just too supernatural. How could you possibly have humans appearing suddenly in a civilized state Mm -hmm. and so recently?
1: Yeah, and so to think biblically about the beginning of human civilization, we have people multiplying quickly, still as one localized population, at least according to Genesis, and probably only a few thousand years ago.
0: And they would have had common experiences and common memories of events.
1: Yeah, I think so. And then even after the flood, you still have humans multiplying quickly back into a large yet localized group.
0: Up until the Tower of Babel, when God forced them to separate, right? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Then we would expect each of those separating nations, as we might call them, to have collective memories and similar oral traditions from major events like what happened in Eden and the Genesis 6 rebellion and the Great Flood.
1: Yeah, I think so. Now, think of the reasoning we used for the previous 9-11 scenario. Should we be surprised that most cultures have a similar creation account and a similar flood account and so on?
0: Actually, we should be surprised if they didn't have similar histories with obviously some differences among the accounts.
1: And although Moses wrote down the oral traditions of the Hebrews centuries later, after some of the other cultures did, our proposition as Bible believers is that his account is the true one.
0: Because we believe the entire Bible was supernaturally inspired by God, Mm -hmm. and we'll be discussing why we believe that in a future episode.
1: And naturally, I wouldn't expect skeptics to accept all of this. But the point here is that believers who do accept divine supernatural inspiration have a valid, coherent explanation for any similarities in ancient historical accounts. Mm -hmm. And there's no need to feel threatened as I did in my civ class.
0: In the quick pod about scripture interpretation, you mentioned the polemic style Moses is likely using here, where it kind of mocks the opposition.
1: Many scholars recognize this style in older writings. It's, a, it's common in a lot of the early literature mm. of that area. About 40 years ago, during the Iran hostage crisis, I remember a polemic used by a group of hostage takers. They took the American Pledge of Allegiance and actually changed the wording to show disdain wow. for America. They had things like one nation under Allah, just things mm. to kind of rub us the wrong way.
0: And that was an example of a polemic using something we would recognize in almost a satirical way that was mm-hmm. meant to snub their noses at us.
1: Mm-hmm. And very likely, Moses was familiar with the Babylonian phrasing of the accounts. And he basically says, ha, here's your story the way it really happened. Oh,
0: yeah. So it's as if he used the common, possibly true parts of their narrative to highlight the differences with the real narrative.
1: And we see the same thing with other Old Testament passages, such as the flood account Mm -hmm. and possibly the Genesis six rebellion that we talked about. A false narrative was replaced by supernaturally inspired, corrected version of it.
0: Let's talk about some of those similar accounts from the Babylonians and perhaps others. I'm really interested. You mentioned some of them contain elements that might be true. Are those useful in any way?
1: I think they can be. A polemic carries the idea that there are uncontested parts that are really historically true. You Mm -hmm. bridge into those true parts to emphasize the false parts.
0: And those are known as um, extra biblical sources, Mm -hmm. maybe accurate, maybe not, and not supernaturally inspired like the Bible.
1: Yeah. And extra biblical writings can be useful, though, mostly in giving us context to that time period. Sometimes they can provide insight into phrases used in Bible passages because the early Jews were part of that larger Mesopotamian culture. We sometimes Mm. forget that. Yeah. We can use the general cultural use of language to help us understand some biblical texts more clearly.
0: And you're not talking about doctrine here, right? We don't base scriptural truth on extra-biblical writings.
1: No. For example, among the books in my modest library that I have right here, I have a book written by famed atheist, Richard Dawkins.
0: Oh, you heretic.
1: (laughs) But I study and teach about worldviews. I needed his book to help me understand how atheists think. So someday in the far distant future, archaeologists excavate my house and (laughs) find some of my writings. They might be confused about some of my rebuttals about atheism.
0: And hopefully atheism will be unknown in the future.
1: Yeah, maybe. But they might understand my writings better by having Dawkins' book there. Knowing what he believed might help explain my contrary belief about what he believed.
0: Then they wouldn't necessarily derive truth from his book, but it would give context for yours.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's one way we can use extra biblical material. I also have other books in my library. I've got C.S. Lewis, Spurgeon, Chuck Mm. Swindoll, Jonathan Edwards, Adrian Rogers, John Popper. Those are some really good books, and they've actually helped me grow spiritually quite a bit.
0: And I'm pretty sure none of those authors would claim that their books are inspired, but they certainly contain a lot of truth.
1: That's right. I read my Bible, of course, but sometimes I get spiritual encouragement and understanding from those extra biblical sources. I've learned a lot from A.W. Tozer, and one of the most enlightening books I've ever read was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And as you said, I don't consider any of these supernaturally inspired There may even be some untrue things in some of them, but they still provide a range of usefulness as far as my spiritual growth goes.
0: Right. And one of the things we know about the second temple time period, just like today, there were a lot of books being written and read.
1: Yeah. And just like today, some were useless, some Mm -hmm. were excellent treatises on doctrine, some were heretical even, and some were inspired and actually eventually became the New Testament.
0: Since the Da Vinci Code book and movie, I've noticed a lot of Christians have issues with extra-biblical books. For example, the Gospel of Thomas was referenced in the movie, and it's full of false teachings.
1: Yeah, it's likely Gnostic, and there's probably some good justification to avoid it completely. Mm -hmm. However, the general avoidance of all extra-biblical material, I think, is kind of unwarranted. In fact, we know the writers of the New Testament read many of these books extensively because they quote from them or use common phrases that can't be coincidental.
0: And as you said, that's okay. There were a lot of good Jewish and Christian writers in the Second Temple period. Mm -hmm. They wrote useful material, just not inspired material. And we often classify those as apocryphal books.
1: Yeah, or non-canonical, since they aren't Mm. included in the canon of the Old and New Testaments. It was also common for some authors to write under names of biblical figures like the Gospel of Thomas. It likely wasn't written by the Apostle Thomas, and these are called pseudepigraphs. I like that word.
0: Yeah, that's a big one.
1: Pseudepigrapha (laughs) are what they're called.
0: And it's possible some weren't actually trying to pass themselves off as a particular historical figure. They simply wrote as though the oral tradition of that person's teaching was finally being written.
1: Yeah. For example, some think the first book of Enoch was written during the second temple time, but it was based on what Enoch might have said back thousands of years ago, Mm. and it had been passed down through oral tradition some way. And speaking of Enoch, let's look at the book more closely.
0: Yeah, if listeners can look at Genesis 6 while I read this, they will notice the similarities. This is from the first book of Enoch, chapter 3. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful daughters. And the watchers, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children.
1: So do you think there's any doubt that that's the same event that Genesis 6 is talking about?
0: I mean, it seems the same to me.
1: Yeah, it was written much later, though, by Second Temple Jews, probably a couple of centuries B.C.
0: But in this account, there's no doubt about who the characters are. It literally says watchers, the children of heaven. We identified the watchers in Daniel as divine beings.
1: And apparently in this passage, the intention of the group was to begat children.
0: Hmm. Okay, I'm going to continue reading the first book of Enoch, chapter three. And Simjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swarved they all together and bound themselves, and they were all in two hundred who descended on the summit of Mount Hermon. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose one for himself. And they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. Wow, much more detail than the Genesis account. These are apparently evil watchers, premeditated their sin, This does seem to support the supernatural view of the sons of God in Genesis 6, too, though.
1: Uh But once again, we still don't accept this as divinely inspired writing. It may or it may not be an accurate historical Mm -hmm. account, but it was the belief of the writer and some of the other Second Temple Jews at that time.
0: Well, and that's very important because it gives us insight into what some were thinking as they read the Genesis 6 passage.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's add another detail here. Jude, the writer of the supernaturally inspired New Testament book of Jude, quoted from first Enoch. So can we say there were uninspired parts of the Bible?
0: No, I believe all the Bible is inspired. The writers do, however, sometimes include phrases from extra biblical sources. Paul quotes one of the Greek poets and a pagan Cretan prophet at one point.
1: Yeah, that's pretty common and there are dozens of citations in Scripture from extra-biblical material. And even though the source isn't inspired, the phrases and other truths, I think, become part of the inspired canon once they become part of it.
0: So, do you think Jude is endorsing First Enoch?
1: Well, not necessarily, but I guess it's up for grabs, isn't it? Scholars speculate about situations such as this, and I suppose we could say that At the least, Jude was familiar with First Enoch, Mm. and he read extra biblical material, and he found a particular part of First Enoch to be useful. Or in this case, it's apparent he agrees with the particular truth that he was inspired to present here.
0: But not necessarily with the entire
1: book. No way of knowing for sure. And some make the argument that he wouldn't have given any credence to a totally fictitious or fallacious work. Or could we make the argument from silence, the fact that he didn't qualify the quote by saying, now I'm using this one quote, but we all know the rest of the book is unreliable. Whatever the case, Jude believed part of First Enoch to be true.
0: Okay. And the quote we're discussing is in Jude verses 14 through 15. I'm going to read it now. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment, on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Wow, that's almost verbatim from first Enoch.
1: And if you back up to Jude verse six, it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until judgment of the great day.
0: Okay, let's follow the logic here. This was the verse we referenced in episode six when we were discussing the belief that these are the angels who sinned in Genesis six, too. Jude quotes from first Enoch in verse 14. Did he have the first Enoch account of the sons of God and daughters of man from first Enoch in mind eight verses earlier in verse six?
1: Some who hold the supernatural view of Genesis six would probably say yeah.
0: Okay. Let's refresh the memories of our listeners. That's the belief that the Genesis 6-2 tells of fallen angels or demons who interbred with human women to produce the hybrid half-human, half-demon Nephilim creatures.
1: Yeah, and proponents of that view would say that Jude must be giving at least tacit approval to the book of Enoch.
0: And they would believe this provides stronger evidence for their view, and it even adds information not found in the Bible. First Enoch tells us, how many demons, and it gives their names if you read farther. There's a lot of speculating there.
1: There is. And we obviously can't assign divine inspiration to Enoch. We can, however, view 1st Enoch as another record of ancient history, at yeah. least equal to other extra biblical historical accounts from that time.
0: Also, this 1st Enoch account doesn't contradict anything in Scripture, and some extra biblical writings do contradict Scripture.
1: Uh huh. Think about the evidence in a modern court case. What if detectives found a size 10 print at the crime scene and the defendant is a size 10? The attorney would say, oh, he has to be guilty because size 10 shoe, size 10 shoe. But no, we address this in episode eight. Obviously, there could be millions of other size 10 feet out there. We can't prove anything, although this doesn't excuse the defendant. We would say the defendant's foot size is not inconsistent with the evidence. That's the way they would put it. It's a double negative. But remember, scientists like to falsify things with a null hypothesis.
0: And we'll use this logical statement many times when looking at paranormal phenomena. The evidence is not inconsistent with Scripture.
1: Yeah. And that will never mean something has been proven. It simply means Scripture doesn't contradict that belief.
0: The Enoch passage adds some other interesting facts. Listen to this. And they became pregnant, and they bear great giants, whose height was 3,000 elves, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Yikes. Weird, huh? Yes, I assume these correspond to the Nephilim in Genesis. Mm -hmm. If this passage is accurate, no wonder humans wanted to destroy them.
1: Yeah, and this will have relevance later. If you look a few verses farther in 1 Enoch, it says some of these children of heaven, what Genesis called sons of God, helped humans develop technology.
0: Yeah, it says the Watchers taught humans about charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots, astronomy, building, technology, and metallurgy, Mm -hmm. etc.
1: Okay, let's move our discussion up to a fringe factor of four.
0: Well, I thought we were already over past that. (laughs) Oh,
1: maybe so. Let's compare the Genesis 6 account with a Mesopotamian account written earlier than Genesis. This is kind of a collage of writings from ancient Sumer and some other Mesopotamian cultures. The stories are somewhat similar. Here's the basic simplified story. At some point, divine beings known by the Mesopotamians as the Upkalus came down from the sky to earth and their job was to assist humans.
0: Okay.
1: They taught us all kinds of things like construction, medicine, magic, cosmetics, metallurgy. And then some of the Upkalus decided to take advantage of the pretty human women.
0: This sounds familiar.
1: Eventually, though, the head god Marduk didn't like this, and he banished these evil Upkalus to the underworld. The good Upkalus stayed and continued to help humans.
0: And generally, they were good guys in Mesopotamian literature. The well-known Gilgamesh was supposedly two-thirds Upkalu, one of the hybrid children.
1: Exactly. And so once again, the Genesis 6 account is probably another polemic in which Moses took the well-known Mesopotamian account and corrected the mistakes that were in it.
0: He made it clear that the beings who came down were all evil. None were righteous or helpful.
1: Yeah. And the Nephilim offspring were evil as well. Also, if you recall from episode 6, we mentioned the brevity of the Genesis 6 account. If Moses truly wrote this as a polemic, the implication is that the Jewish recipients were already familiar with this pagan Mesopotamian account.
0: Right. So they would have immediately known. And once again, if we make an argument from silence, Moses's intention was to fix the false elements of the Mesopotamian story. Can we say the parts he didn't address may have been true?
1: Uh, Some make that claim. It's just speculation, though.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Okay, let's go all the way for a fringe factor five.
0: What? It doesn't get any friendier than this.
1: I know we're, we're pushing it. <laughs> okay. In the late 60s, a Swiss hotel manager, Eric von Doniken, published the book Chariots of the Gods, which eventually became a bestseller by the 1970s. A couple of years before getting messed up with my civ teacher, I actually read this book. The premise was that the Bible and most other historical accounts were actually stories about ancient aliens visiting Earth. Sound familiar?
0: Oh my goodness, that's like everywhere. The Ancient Alien series on History Channel, A&E, yeah. it goes on and on.
1: Yeah, 19 seasons, over 200 episodes, and still going. Mostly the idea of Von Doniken and another writer Zechariah Stitchin. It's a very popular series. It covers a lot of topics, but generally everything in history was controlled by extraterrestrials. That's the premise. Okay. So, ETs probably created us by manipulating genetics. They appear occasionally to help us out and kind of give us a little nudge. And sometimes they come down maybe and help us with an upgrade on our technology (laughs) some way.
0: And they claim that biblical events can be explained by alien interactions. Dividing the Red Sea, they say, was a force field. The Ark of the Covenant, they say, was an advanced generator of some sort. Um, They think that Ezekiel saw a flying saucer. And that Elijah called a laser beam down to burn his sacrifice.
1: And for our discussion, this belief sees the Apkalu and biblical angels as extraterrestrials, obviously.
0: This is tricky stuff.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And most important, they try to use the Genesis 6 account as a proof text for all of this. They claim that it's all about human interactions with aliens.
0: So just replace the supernatural beings with extraterrestrials, and then it all makes sense, right?
1: Well, von Doniken would think so, along with an army of ancient alien fans, <laughs> I would suppose.
0: And it completely eliminates the biblical God Most High and replaces him with some alien leader with advanced technology.
1: Yeah. According to our ancient alien message, our only sin is destroying the environment or threatening ourselves with nuclear annihilation. And by the way, neither von Doniken nor Stitchin's ideas have any real academic credibility. Linguists and historians have shown that their interpretations of the ancient texts are so flawed that they're almost unrecognizable.
0: And you know, we wouldn't even be discussing this crazy idea here, except that so many people follow these ideas religiously. And I mean that literally. There are UFO religions that are based on this idea. Over 20 major UFO religions worldwide with millions of believers.
1: Yeah. Some of the larger groups are the Raelians and the Urantians. Uh, the Aetherians, and the well-known Scientologists.
0: And to someone really seeking truth and already dabbling with wrong ideas about the paranormal, all this is very alluring.
1: Yeah, tell me about it. When I look back at my life, I am so grateful that God mercifully pulled me out of Von Donegan's books, and so many other pits that I probably had fallen into. I admit, it's entirely His grace that's kept me from a whole bunch of disastrous paths that I could have taken.
0: Well, in one episode, we've gone from the dawn of humankind to present-day UAP disclosure. That should set some podcast record.
1: At least. But that's expected. Human history isn't random and chaotic. It's a narrative of God's grace and mercy and bringing us to a specific conclusion. Ancient history is very much His story.
0: And that's very comforting. If God was in control of the past, we can certainly trust Him to handle the future.
1: And it's easy to see how the ancient alien idea could lead to major widespread deceptions. We've recently witnessed how a virus can change the world overnight. Imagine what would happen Mm. if a demon claiming to be an ancient alien appeared on the White House lawn and said, Hello again, people of Earth. We've been watching you since we created you millions of years ago. And now that you've become civilized enough to be our friends... Welcome to the Federation.
0: (laughs) You know, that would sound just like good science fiction. Until the events of the past few weeks.
1: Yeah, our world is changing at light speed, isn't it? And the worldviews are changing even faster.
0: Yes, Congress, the military, whistleblowers openly discussing UFOs and extraterrestrials.
1: And not simply seeing strange UAP, reputable people claiming we have real physical evidence now.
0: Amazing. What do you think about all of this?
1: Well, watch for the upcoming episode.
0: Ah, another cliffhanger. If you would like to comment or share an experience with us, email us at godintheparanormal at gmail.com. You can also get more information at our website, thinkingaboutthebible.com. We're on all major podcast platforms now, so please spread the word. Goodbye for now.